night. I'm going to deal with chapter three, hopefully in a survey, and then we'll look closer at chapter four, which is really, really short, but it's the end of the, the prophecy itself. How is everyone? A bunch of kids are missing tonight. Kids are at the, the camp, and somebody thought they broke their arm today, so Roger was with a kid at the Morton emergency room. But for boys, that's just a sign that they're having fun. So a friend of mine, uh, he was a youth pastor in uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico. And he said, every time we get together as a youth group, we have an emergency room visit. And uh, it's like, well, that's, I want to go to that youth group. That sounds like a lot of fun. So, but I don't think, I think the only emergency room visits we've had is kids getting hurt on the church chairs. So Asher broke his arm. Uh, he fell off one, and backwards he went like that. And then Isaac got six stitches from another one. These chairs are dangerous. So, But anyway, um, yeah, where am I here? Okay, well, uh, just to get us back, I know we took a break. I was gone, and, uh, and then we had prayer night, and so we took a break from the prophecy. Uh, the, this, this particular prophecy actually begins in chapter 2, and then it goes all the way uh, to the end of chapter 4. And uh, so we, we need to go back to chapter 2 to regroup so that we can maintain the hermeneutic that uh, the Holy Spirit gave us. He prescribed for us in chapter uh, 2, verse 1, uh, which says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, so the prophecy, uh, in getting our, our minds back together on the context, it has everything to do with Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, that is what the Holy Spirit has provided for us there in the subscription, or superscription. So whatever we find in the prophecy has to relate back to Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, now, if you read various commentators, there's a large discussion about uh, what is meant by Judah and Jerusalem? Uh, I, I don't know if I'm not created a, enough or whatever, but when I read it's concerning Judah and Jerusalem, to me it's Judah and Jerusalem, okay? And as I said uh, before, this uh, superscription is not a part of the prophecy itself. It's just introducing and telling us that this particular prophecy has these things in, in mind. So uh, that's the hermeneutic I will stick to uh, as we go through this, um, I want the, the text itself to determine uh, the hermeneutic for us. The hermeneutic is just the method of interpretation. Uh, and it's interesting, when we go through a lot of uh, biblical prophecy, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, uh, you will find a hermeneutic embedded into the text. And when you find it, that's something you want to hold to. You can anchor to it. <clears throat> Especially when the, the prophecy begins to use a lot of figurative language, a lot of symbolic language. So you find where there's a rule given, a control, and you, you set that anchor down. And if you get multiple uh, uh, kind of controls throughout a prophecy, you set all those down. And what that does is it kind of anchors the whole prophecy to those particular things. Uh, there, just an example... Uh, of this, uh, we see Jesus uh, doing this in the revelation of Jesus Christ um, in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, you know, in the vision there, John on the island of Patmos, he, he saw seven golden lampstands. 
verse 12 of chapter 1. And then he saw seven stars in the hand of, of Christ, verse 16. And so when you read that, your mind automatically says, what? What's that? What is all that? What does it mean? What could it possibly be? Well, if that is all that was said and there was no explanation, then what we would do is we would be stuck with uh, trying to figure out the best we could uh, what those things symbolized. Maybe, you know, exploring the Old Testament. Where do we see this elsewhere? Well, we don't. And uh, so you would be stuck. But then in the prophecy, Jesus begins to speak, right? And in verse 17 through 20, and he explains what those things symbolize. That is, Jesus himself puts some anchors down. He provides a hermeneutic. And he says that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches of Asia. And the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches of Asia. So regardless of where you go in the book of Revelation, uh, the seven stars will always be the seven churches. The seven lampstands will always be Okay, I mean the lampstands will be the churches, the stars will always be the angels. It doesn't matter, that is a, it's, it's concrete, it's, it's a hermeneutic that he sets. So that's what you want to hold on to, especially when you uh, go through Revelation chapter 2 and 3, because that stuff is brought up. Okay? So whenever scripture provides the hermeneutic, that's the key uh, to understanding the prophecy. So the prophecy of Isaiah 2 and 4 concerns itself with what will happen, as the text says, to Jerusalem and Judah. There's some other language, some phrases um, that are important because they're going to come up again as we go through Isaiah, especially as we go through the other prophets. And these are the the phrases. Uh, The first one is the latter days. We find that in verse 2, which is used 10 times by the prophets, that exact, exact phrase, and they're all relating it to the same thing. The other one is the day of the Lord in verse 12, which is used 27 times by the prophets. And the theme surrounding that is always the same. So I would bet that every time those phrases are used, we're talking about the same uh, maybe series of events that's yet future. You understand? So we want to understand the phrases. We'll talk about them a little bit more tonight. So from the information that we have so far, we know that the prophecy concerns Judah and Jerusalem. It will occur in the latter days, in this period of time that is called the day of the Lord. So with that in mind, let's tackle chapter 3 and 4. I would like to read the prophecy to you. Chapter 3 is long, uh, so you can stand if you want, or you can just be seated. All right? All right, I'm going to begin. Look at the endurance some of you people have. Stand it up. So he begins by saying, for behold, so that's... He's continuing on with, with, uh, from chapter 2. The Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, and the diviner, and the elder, the captain of 50, and the honorable man, the counselor, and the skillful artisan, and the expert enchanter. I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed Everyone by another and everyone by his neighbor, the child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father saying, you have clothing, you be our ruler and let these ruins be under your power. In that day he will protest saying, I cannot cure your ills for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. 
For Jerusalem stumbled and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The look on their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul for they have brought evil upon themselves. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with them for the reward of his hands shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. The Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? Says the Lord, God of hosts. Moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms, and the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel, and the, man the mantles, the outer garments, the purses, and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans, and the robes. So it shall be, instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit on the ground. And, and in that day, seven women, now this verse should be in chapter three. We'll rebuke the scholars when we get to heaven because they, they're dead that did this to us. And in, the, in, in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man saying, we will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a covering and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, you are the one who knows the very end of all time, all the events, and you know it from the beginning. And Lord, you can tell us about it all. And then in your sovereignty, you can bring it to pass. And Lord, we thank you that we serve you and not someone else. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us about things to come. And uh, through that, we would be encouraged. Yeah, thank you, Lord. We pray also that you would be with our youth as they're at camp this week. Lord, as, as the guys are teaching them 
just methods to study the word. I pray that our young people would just be intrigued and motivated, and Lord, that you'd use this to, as David said, to show them wonderful things in your word. So reveal yourself to them, open their hearts up to the word, and just instruct them. We, and, and we do pray that as they are crazy and having fun, that uh, you keep them safe. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Good job, standers. Yeah, all right. So I'm not going to examine every verse in chapter 3. I'm going to try to get through kind of an outline, kind of a survey, and then uh, we'll get to the next chapter. So verse 1 said, For behold, uh, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, uh, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. So clearly the prophecy is still about Judah and Jerusalem. And we're saying that sometime in the latter days, because of the Jews' rebellion, uh, God will reduce them to a state of desolation and desperation. You see that in the the prophecy. There's going to be an extreme shortage of necessary goods. Perhaps it's famine. And as we know from world history, famine is oftentimes brought upon by war. Uh, We are going to see that, of course, in Ukraine which is uh, one of the, the largest bread baskets of planet Earth, and uh, that wheat will not be planted and it will not come to harvest this year in many, many parts of it. So there's a famine can be a product of war. There's going to be an overall shortage in this judgment uh, of necessary leadership, politically, militarily, and religious, verse 2 and 3, and verse 25. And then those who are you know, left as a result of this judgment will be led by those who are completely disqualified for leadership. Verse 4, and the whole nation, it says, and it doesn't give us timing. Is it a, we don't know if it's a product of this or if it's through all of this, but they're going to be oppressed by one another. It's going to be a mess, verse 5. And every kind of authority, an authority figure, whether it be a, a father or a city elder, uh, it's going to, they're going to be despised, verse 5. And the people will be so desperate for someone to lead them out of their troubles that they'll plead with anyone, as the text says, who has a cloak, who has an outer garment to be their ruler. You at least have something. And, uh, but then, as verse 6 and 7 says, they will be denied. So Judah and Jerusalem are in this state of affairs because, as God says, the things they say and what they do is constantly against the Lord, verse 8, and it says that their sin is as of Sodom, verse 9. And so from the scriptures, we know that the sin of Sodom was sexual deviance, and um, they were uh, not hospitable, according to the prophets. And there's a glimmer of hope in the text in verse uh, verse 10. It says the righteous within Judah will ultimately be spared. Now, that's what we come back to when we get to chapter 4 because it picks up with those who were spared, the righteous, and then it talks about them again, but comes right back to the wicked. It says they get what they deserve, verse 11. It says the children oppress them, verse 12, and women rule over them. And before that, it seems, God will judge those who formerly ruled, verse 13. And he says, I will judge them because they oppress the poor, 14 through 15. And then it goes into this very long description of what God is going to do to the women of Zion. He says, they're haughty, verse 16, how so? They were walking with outstretched necks. They were wanton, it says. The, the Hebrew word there means to have 
uh, being flirtatious with the eyes, with a mincing gait, that is, they walked seductively. They will draw attention to themselves with all of their jewelry. Now, when I first read that, I thought it was referring to the Kardashians, but they're not Jewish. And so it's talking about judging the immodesty of the women by, by causing a scab to form on their heads. It says to expose their secret parts. It means their, their privates exposed. He's going to remove all of their finery, anklets, scarves, it's crescents, the, the pendants, bracelets, charms, nose rings, all this stuff. It just goes on and on and on and on. The sweet smells, if you've ever been in the Middle East, especially uh, like Saudi Arabia, uh, they wear a lot of oils because they don't bathe a lot. So they just put on all this oil. And, uh, but imagine if they didn't have oil and, and they still had no baths. So he says that their sweet smells will be replaced with a stench. Their beautiful garments that were once wrapped with a sash will only have a rope. And instead of having their hair, they'll have baldness. Rich robes will be replaced with sackcloth, branding instead of beauty. Their husbands will be stripped away from them because of war. All of their rejoicing will be turned to mourning and marriage will be replaced with widowhood. Now, In order for the Holy Spirit to go on such a long description about these women, their immodesty, their sensuality, things must have been really, really bad. He could have been talking about Western culture. So things are going to get bad, apparently. But overall, as a result of God's judgment, Judah, Jerusalem, will be completely destabilized as a nation And he will leave them desolate and he'll leave them desperate. Now, biblically, when it comes to Israel itself, why would God do that? Why would he bring them to such a state? It's not like this would be the first time. But in the book of Judges, we see Israel go through this cycle all the way through the book of Judges. So they sin and rebel against the Lord. And the Lord brings judgment upon them from another nation. And then they cry out to him. They confess their sins. They repent. They're restored. And uh, usually through some kind of deliverer, okay? And then that deliverer dies, and what happens? They go back into idolatry and morality, and the whole process starts over again. God provides them a deliverer, and, uh, and then it just keeps going on and on and on. Well, when we get to the end of this judgment, uh, we have a deliverer come on the scene, and uh, he brings Israel back to a place of repentance and restoration. But this time, the restoration is permanent. God brings an end to all of it. The Jews who remain, the remnants of Israel who survived, will be saved forever. So let's look at their restoration. Isaiah 4, 2, it says, In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have, what? Escaped. So in that day, now context would suggest that the day that we've been talking about is the day of the Lord, uh, which is not one day, but it's an extended period of time where an abundance of prophecy unravels in a series of events. Okay, we've been reading about some of those, at least one of those, the judgment. Of course, many things within the judgment. And then we come to this event, just one within the series. But we know that it follows troublesome times for Judah and Jerusalem, self-imposed. But it'll be in that day, sometime within there, a day of the Lord, that the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. 
Now, if you have a New King James Version, an NIV or an NASB, you notice that the word branch is capitalized. If you have an ESV or something else, it may not be capitalized. Now, the translators chose to capitalize it in these translations because they see the word uh, as referring to a person, to a person, a person, a significant person of prophecy who is going to be discussed a lot throughout the prophets. The branch as a person is mentioned in these passages here, including 4.2 of Isaiah, Isaiah 11.1, Jeremiah 23.5 and 33.15, Zechariah 3.8.6.12. Let me uh, give you one of them. It's from Jeremiah 23.5 and 6. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth, in the earth. So the branch is a king. He's going to be a descendant of David. That was sort of required, wasn't it? Because God promised David, you will not fail to have one of your sons on the throne. And he's ultimately going to rule over the entire earth. And Jeremiah goes on to talk about the result. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So in his days, now as more is revealed about this person, we, we quickly realize that it's who? It's Christ. That's right. The Lord, our righteousness. And because the context here uh, is identical to Isaiah 4, we can rightly say that this is his day, the day of the Lord. Okay? And the result of his judgment and his justice is that Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, Judah and Israel, uh, if we're keeping with any kind of prophetic context, this is ethnic Israelis, the, the physical descendants of Jacob. In the days of this king, it's ethnic Israel. They're going to be delivered, they're going to be rescued, and they're going to, because of this king, they're going to dwell safely. Now, during Jesus' first coming, Judah was not saved, were they? They weren't. In fact, Jesus's, Jesus was most popular in the north, in Galilee. His greatest problems were always in Judea, in the south. Okay, didn't go well. And Israel was not dwelling safely. They were in bondage to the tyranny of who? Of Rome. Yeah. So Jeremiah cannot be referring to Jesus's first coming. Okay. But in the latter days of Messiah, after he comes again, what is left of ethnic Israel after the judgment, they will be saved, just as Paul says in Romans 11. Paul says, and so, and this is after much commentary, he says, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, that has, that's actually two, uh, two quotes one from Isaiah 59, 20 and 21, and the other from Isaiah 27, verse 9. Same prophet. Now, there are some who interpret Israel uh, as a reference to the church, uh, but the overall context of Romans 11 forbids it. And then when you add the prophecies from Isaiah, you see that they're clearly referring to uh, an ethnic group, the actual descendants of Jacob. So the day is coming when Christ, the branch, will redeem his people, redeem them. So the branch here, he's introduced by Isaiah for the first time, and his identity and mission is clarified as we go 
uh, through this, the, the further revelation that's provided. Uh, from Isaiah 11.1, uh, the branch is called the rod of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the father of David. Okay. Um, the father refers to the branch as my servant, the branch, Zechariah 3.8. And then in Zechariah 6.12, it says, behold, the man whose name is the branch. So at some time in the future, the Messiah will intervene on behalf of his covenant people when he comes the second time. He will exercise justice and judgment in the earth, on planet earth. Verse three of Isaiah four. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. So again, it keeps coming back to this redeemed remnant of ethnic Israel that's following this righteous judgment of God. Those who are left, they're going to be holy. So they're not just going to be saved physically from some trouble. This remnant will be born again. This remnant of Jews will be followers of Christ. Verse four, it says, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and purge the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. So because of Christ, the branch, ethnic Israel will be washed, purged of their sin. Now the word filth uh, is always used figuratively in the Old Testament. So it's speaking of moral filth. And then it's interesting, the Hebrew word for blood here is plural. When it's used in the plural, it means blood that was shed violently. Blood flowed. It's a product of the sword. It's, it's the product of violence. So whatever they've gone through, it's been bad. And so Zion's purging, knowing the history of Israel. This is a, a really big deal. Though her sins were as scarlet, they will be white as snow. And then the passage says that this will follow from the spirit of judgment and burning. What in the world does he mean by that? Any of you guys have a translation where the spirit is capitalized? Any translations do that? No, okay. So in translating, the, the Hebrew word there for spirit is, is ruah, and it means wind, it means breeze, it means breath, it also means spirit. And so the translators, they, every time they come to this word in the, in the Old Testament, they have to determine by the context. Is he talking about the wind? Is he talking about someone's breath? Is he talking about uh, the Holy Spirit? Or is he talking about perhaps maybe the spirit of a man? Um, some translation notes actually capitalize the word spirit. That would denote it uh, to be the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, others interpret the text to mean that this is like a, a, a burst of wind. It's a burst of judgment, a rush of burning heat, uh, which heat, of course, is often indicative of God's anger and judgment. Now, whichever one you decide it is, because your guess is as good as any translator. You don't need a PhD in the Semitic languages. Uh, this is really, you get to decide this one, because uh, nobody really knows. And, and I think that's fine, because the end result is the same. Okay, either way you look at it, the result is the same. The remnant of ethnic Israel will be redeemed following God's judgment, whether he did that um, by the Holy Spirit, or he did it uh, by the instrumentation of, of another um, nation, whatever, uh, he gets to do that. It's still attributed to the Lord. Now, this is exciting. It's exciting. Because 
it's here that we find that all of these ancient promises that God made to Abraham, to David, and to ethnic Israel will be fulfilled. I don't know about you guys, but uh, God's word on something is important to me. And when I read uh, Genesis chapter 12, I read Genesis 15, 17, 22, everything said to Abraham, uh, I go, oh, it's unconditional, it's unilateral. So I'm always looking for the fulfillment. And when you get to Malachi, you're still going, when is this going to be fulfilled, right? You're asking the question. And then we have the throne promise that was made to David. And uh, so you're always wondering, when is this going to be fulfilled where that last son takes the throne and uh, reigns, Psalm chapter 2. And then you wonder the redemptive promise, the redemption promise of ethnic Israel. Um, when's that going to happen? And, but what we see now here in Isaiah is we see a discussion about a time when God plans on fulfilling all of his promises to them. So we see him giving his word again to keep his promise to the very end. As Paul said, if we are unfaithful, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13. In Romans, referring to ethnic Israel, it says the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. They're irrevocable. So that fills into Paul's commentary when he gives this explanation. And at that time in the future, he says, when the fullness of the Gentiles finally comes in, he says, blindness in part has happened to the Jew. And he says, this blindness will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then all Israel will be saved. So it's an interesting timeline in there. But Israel has not been faithful. But the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And his promise is unconditional. And so he will bring about Israel's redemption. He will bring about the throne promise. He will bring about the Abrahamic land promise. And it's all here in our text. To me, that's exciting. And God, if he's going to uh, keep promises to Israel, uh, I believe he can keep promises to me. Amen? Yeah. So I think it's exciting. Uh, one of the other things I think that, that makes it exciting is that uh, Israel was outside of the land uh, for how long? Just a little while, right? 70 AD, they were removed by the Roman legions. And uh, they were wandering about, uh, scattered all over the place, over uh, Europe and Russia, and uh, even into further east. And then they were scattered down into parts of Africa. And then through a series of events, world wars, uh, of all groups, uh, the, the group that is most critical of Israel now is the very one that gave them, their, allowed them to, to recover their sovereignty in Israel in May 14th, 1948. So now we have, after all this time, uh, we have ethnic Israel back in the land that was promised to them, still not redeemed, still not repentant. But we see uh, hints of, of prophecy because God said, I'll gather them back in the land. That's exciting. And uh, so it makes me wonder, what's next? Is the judgment of Israel next? Uh, is there some things in between? Uh, I don't care. Uh, I'm just going to sit back and observe and uh, watch God faithfully fulfill everything that he said in the scriptures. You know what I'm saying? He's going to do whatever it takes to fulfill those promises, something he can do in his sovereignty. Verse 5 says, Then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies, that is when the people of Israel come together, a cloud and smoke by day and a shining 
and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a covering. Uh, what's, what's this reminiscent of? Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it looks back to the wilderness wandering uh, where they had those things. Uh, now, now, though those things in the wilderness, those were literally happening. In the daytime, they saw the cloud. At night, they saw the fire. But those things being there also informed the Israeli mind that God was with us, right? This miracle was manifesting itself 24-7, and it did it for 40 years, okay? But it was also there as God's presence leading them through the, the desert. He was guiding them by those means, both day and night. Um, I've been to some of that desert. I would want to travel at night. That's just me. The cloud, maybe it provided some shade. I don't know. Some believe that. But then, after they entered the land of Canaan, the cloud and the fire did what? It was gone, along with the manna. You know, all of these interesting provisions, they were gone. Not that God's presence had abandoned them, but he chose to manifest himself in another way in a different place, uh, called the tabernacle and then later the temple. But following Israel's redemption at this future time, God's presence, it says, will abide with them at all times. But the difference is, is that Zion will become a permanent dwelling. The cloud and the fire isn't going to go anywhere. It's done. Okay, it, that's all done. In verse 6, And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. So in the wilderness, just as they had the, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, uh, the tabernacle was erected in the very center of the camp. Okay, so all Israel would camp to the north, south, east, and west by tribes. And then in the very center would be the tabernacle, right in the center. God was to be the center of their lives. But in this prophecy, the tabernacle doesn't just cover the sanctuary, that is the, the, the holy place and the holy of holies. It covers all of Zion, everything, and everyone there is under its covering. All Israel is going to be incorporated into the tabernacle of God, the house of God. And thus, under his protection, it says, from the sun, the idea there is from an enemy, from storm, from rain. So the question is, because that's strange language, at that time, will there be a literal cloud? Will there be a literal fire and literal tabernacle? Or do they speak of the Lord's actual presence with Israel as their refuge and their protector? Now, the challenge when we come to uh, phrases and concepts like this, if the scriptures don't talk about it any other place, guess what? We get to make a sanctified holy guess about it. We gather all the information we can uh, about those kinds of things, and then we maybe try to come to some understanding. I'm not willing at this point to, to say anything concrete uh, because the text doesn't define it. It doesn't say this is concerning Jude and Jerusalem here. Uh, now, we know that this applies to Judah and Jerusalem, but what it all looks like, I don't really know. Nothing is found elsewhere to talk about it. Uh, we do have a discussion about the branch, but we don't have a discussion about this. My guess that I think is a reasonable conclusion is that because the branch, who is Christ, their Redeemer is among them, that these things symbolize his presence and glory in their midst. And because he will be with them at that time, nothing can touch them. Not an enemy, not the climate, not the elements, not famine, nothing at all. 
He has them absolutely covered. He is their deliverer. And unlike the deliverers of judges, guess what? This one doesn't pass on. He rules forever and ever. So whatever it does mean, this prophecy looks forward to a future redeemed ethnic Israel in the land of promise. That's what we're looking forward to. And Isaiah coming along as one of the first major prophets like this, uh, this thread of communication will continue all the way through to Malachi. And then we enter into the, the Gospels. So as we go through Isaiah, we're going to be circling back to this whole thing. And we'll find that indeed, almost all of it is concerning Judah and Jerusalem and what God has in store for them. Many of the prophecies will deal with what's going on with Israel at that time, but many of them will look forward to the distant, distant future. All right, we're going to get out early tonight, and I did two chapters. Why don't you stand up, and uh, if you have any questions about the text tonight, please ask, and uh, if anybody needs prayer, I would love to pray with you. We will, I mentioned last time we were together that if you were to uh, put a, you know, hang a large canvas up, and uh, as you get all of the pieces 